Hello, I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. This is the ninth and final installment in Season 2 of Alberta Unbound, a podcast designed to interrogate the nature of Alberta political and social identity. With the tumultuous 2020 behind us, how do we position ourselves in our province to face the challenges of 2021, and what do we want the rest of Canada to know about Alberta? For this concluding episode of our series, I asked an acclaimed Indigenous painter, an award-winning young adult novelist, and an Edmonton City Councillor to join me to talk about the way we define ourselves as Albertans. Uh, But no, this won't be a panel discussion. I don't have three guests, just one. The multi-talented and multifaceted Erin Paquette. Here's our conversation. Erin Paquette, you are an acclaimed visual artist. You are an award-winning author. You are also a politician. So how do you define yourself? Who is Erin Paquette? Um... I'm just me. That's it. I'm I'm pleading the Gandalf defense. (laughs) So, I mean, on on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, are you a visual artist? And Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, you're a city councillor? And Sundays is for being a uh, a young adult author? Yeah, I'm glad that you kept digging. Uh, I will give you the the deeper answer, I suppose, if it is one. a lot of young people ask me this question because they're obviously looking about, uh, to the future and wondering who they're going to be and who they want to be and what's possible for them. And I find that my artwork, my writing, uh, public speaking, uh, political work, it all comes from the same source. And that source is wanting to serve of being... Um, less focused on myself and more focused on how I can help my community. And that's been the driving force behind everything I've, I've done in life um, that has yielded any kind of positive result. And so that creativity that might be inherent in uh, what we consider the arts um, has definitely transposed itself into uh, the humanities, which is politics. And I think that that's what it really all comes down to is um, we live in a society that values the head. So as I understand it, your mom comes from a Norwegian family background. That's your, right. And your dad was uh, cremate or? Yep. And my, my it... father is cremate and even Cayuse. But, you know, that gets, three things gets complicated. So we okay. usually just say cremate. Right. And Cayuse is a First Nation from, from where? Uh, from the United States. And uh, they got dispossessed of their lands and got uh, the whole tribe got moved up into Washington State with the uh, Umatilla Reservation. Okay. Yeah. So did you grow up with a strong sense of Indigenous identity or was that something you, you came to later in life? So my mom was pretty phenomenal. Uh, in that she ensured that we had a a strong indigenous identity growing up and that that culture was alive in our, in our, in our home and in our lives. And, uh, but she also 
wanted us to understand our Norwegian background. And so we were brought up with uh, all of that as well. So we really were a combination of cultures. And the interesting thing is that at the root, they're pretty, pretty similar. The storytelling, uh, the colors, the, the um, celebrations uh, throughout the year tend to, tended to overlap in many ways. And so- Do you think, do you think uh, that's a Northern identity? Is there something about that? is there something about the geography and climate that do you think that's what that I think? I think it might be those those long winters, those cold nights, and uh, those explosions that summer represents, and that's very Albertan. <laughs> it is absolutely Albertan, Etta. It is absolutely Albertan. So, so how do you think that that whole combination of identities? as artist, as family man, as Norwegian Canadian, as indigenous Canadian, how do they form your own sense of yourself as an Albertan? Well, that's a very good question. It's something I never gave any thought to, you know, growing well, good, up. I'm, put, you I'm putting you to work then. Who am I as an Albertan? That's not uh, what young people are really thinking about unless they're <laughs> asked in school, right? And so I grew up just being me in a community, uh, in a family and on the land. And I spent a lot of time on the land. And so if anything, I um, sort of formed my identity as an Albertan. It was my relationship uh, to people, but also my relationship to the natural world that surrounds us and that deep appreciation. And over the decades, watching that landscape change and in unfortunately, in, in a lot of ways, not for the better. Um, I've definitely noticed, and a lot of people will say this, um, a decreasing of diversity and abundance of wildlife. And uh, as an Albertan, that troubles me greatly. And uh, there's definitely some sorrow embedded in that. So when you say on the land, did you, did your dad's family, were they still running trap lines? Were they hunting? What what kind of on the land experience did you have? Yeah, so uncles, uh, definitely. Um, and uh, of course, going out to the res and, uh, you know, and then from there launching out into all sorts of places. One of the things that was important to my family growing up is that you would understand how to live on the land, how to um, survive in the winter, how to gather food in the summer, um, how to um, trap and hunt. And uh, so those were things that, uh, we were raised with, and that uh, as I became a teenager, I actively pursued because um, if you can't count on on the person beside you and it can't uh, be someone who can be counted on, uh, you're going to find yourself in a precarious position in life. Yeah. And where where was the res? Which which First Nation? Well, uh, we uh, we had family out in what is used to be called Hobima. And it's now called Muscochis. Yeah. And uh, so that was primarily it. But my father also, or my dad, my stepdad actually uh, comes from up north, like so Jassard and Driftpile in those areas. And of course, now that uh, I am married, we head out a lot to Saddle Lake. Oh, wow. So that, yeah, so that, that gives you, that gives you a, a wide geographic scope. But you know, well, you yeah, guys my are... father now happens to live uh, on the blood reserve. And I actually lived down in Southern Alberta for a few years as well. So yeah. that, 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 I was going to say that covers the waterfront, but that's completely the wrong metaphor. <laughs> there are no waterfronts, but 
You raise a really, really interesting point because so much of our conversation about Alberta identity has been about political identity and social and cultural identity. But I think you're absolutely right. I think there is something very particular about the relationship with the land and the landscape. And even, you know, someone like me, uh, born and raised in the city, there is something about being in rural Alberta, whether it's in the foothills or the mountains or the prairies or the northern boreal forest. And during the time I lived in Toronto, I mean, I never had that same sense of being connected to the land. And I think there is something that we have not talked about in the course of these interviews about our relationship with the weather, with the geography, with the wildlife, with the, with the, with the vegetation here that really does shape our identity, I think, in ways that we don't often delve into. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think that there's something really fascinating about Canada in that uh, with Indigenous cultures, the language comes from the experience of the land. And English is sort of this uh, interesting hodgepodge of, uh, of influences that, uh, you know, come from all sorts of places and it's sort of a construct that was developed over a long time. But when you, um, he, to me, when I hear the Cree language being spoken, for example, um, if I just sort of close my eyes and zone out a little bit, what I hear is uh, the water in a creek uh, bubbling about. I hear the wind blowing through grasses. I hear the creaking of the trees. And I hear the call of the animals embedded in the language. And so there's something powerful about a, a language that is indigenous to the land. And... Uh, it teaches us a lot about our relationship to the land and therefore our relationship to each other because we depend on the water, we depend on the earth, we depend on the animals. So I wanted to tell, get you to tell a story that I think is pretty well known in Edmonton, but probably not very well known outside of it. And that is the story of the Grandin LRT station. Now, I know this, if, if you're listening and you're not from Edmonton, this is going to sound bizarre, but I'm going to explain this, and then I'm going to let Aaron finish the story. So you need to understand that the Grandin LRT station is uh, near the Alberta legislature in the Grandin neighborhood, which is named for a uh, French Roman Catholic missionary bishop, Bishop, Bishop Vital Grandin. And when the station opened, it featured a great big mural of gray nuns and indigenous children and for many, many years when I was growing up, it was a beautiful mural. Everybody appreciated the mural. And then I think it's really you know, the genesis from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, made a lot of people look at that mural with new eyes and say, ah, so instead of being a happy story of good nuns looking after uh, vulnerable children, is this actually a depiction of residential schools? And, and how do we feel about that? And there was a lot of concern that maybe we should eliminate the mural entirely, you know, literally whitewash it, which is not what happened. So I wondered, now that I've done that preface, if you can sort of pick up the story from there about how you engaged with that original mural and, and what became of that project. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because that would have been about uh, seven years ago now, that, uh, or eight years ago that I was involved in those initial talks. I was invited into the circle. I didn't even know what I was doing there. I was just this, uh, this guy from, you know, my home. <laughs> Why am I going into this government office to talk about this issue? Yeah, because this is long before you're a city councilor or, or a, a political candidate. You're, you're... And I thought, aren't important people supposed to be under, like, debating this? And 
you know, now I understand there are no important people uh, <laughs> or we are all important people. And uh, so there shouldn't be a distinction. But uh, so I felt a little intimidated, but the conversation that was going around was very, very um, laden with emotion. Uh, anywhere from sorrow to anger to shame to regret to um, to uh, defensiveness, right? Yeah. And I, I was thinking as the conversation was going around about uh, you know the experience of my family, um, not only as immigrants but also the indigenous experience of uh, of pain, basically. And I just I thought about. Um, the fact that I wouldn't be sitting in that room uh, if it weren't for all of those experiences. And I wouldn't um, have found this idea that service of my community was, was one of the most important things in the world to me. If maybe my community was never under threat. Right. And so I kind of put forward this idea that we don't change anything about the murals because it's part of our story. But what we do is we add to it and we add context and we add meaning so that what happened, what was depicted in those murals, which on one side of the story was a positive, wonderful thing. You know, this, this opening up of the land for people to find uh, life and love and make a living and build community. Whereas on the other hand, it looked like a celebration of atrocity. How do we reconcile these stories? Can we reconcile them? And so I thought, you know, what if we just got an artist to work with youth and elders and the community to create something new? And they liked the idea. They asked me to drop a budget and they would put it out to tender. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. Gave it to them, walked away. If I had known they were going to ask me to paint this Paula, I would have created a much more robust and uh, well-paying budget. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think I ended up sinking 30 grand of my own money into this. Oh, wow. But, uh, you know, we, we got it done. And uh, my one stipulation is that if I was going to do it, I, I felt the original artist had to be consulted and come back. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a part of it. So Sylvie Nadeau, who is the original artist, she, uh, um, to her credit, after being dragged through the mud uh, in, in, in the public, by some people over the, over this work, which she had done with a good spirit. Um, she agreed to come back and it was a brave thing for her to do. And we worked on some new panels and uh, I uh, consulted with elders and, and had youth come work with me. And we talked with the community and we created this new mural on the other side. And a lot of people were saying, you know, really stick it to the, to the, to the colonists and, and really show them the pain we went through. And I thought that's unnecessary that already exists on the other mural. And the elders told me, do not approach this from anger. Do not approach it from uh, blame. Approach it from a place of strength and a place of rootedness. And so that's what we did. And that's why the new mural is full of color. It's full of life. It's connected to the land and history. And it's a celebration. And the murals together tell a story that is uh, millennia old and hopefully will continue millennial forward in a good way so i mean your artwork it's not that it's apolitical by any stretch of the imagination but much of it is not overtly political so how do you decide for yourself you know your your politician side and your artist side 
where the two of them have that confluence. Well, you're right. My, my work is uh, very subtly uh, subversive. And uh, that was intentional. Um, I was talking with Alex Jean-Pierre once, and uh, he said, you can talk about anything you want in your artwork, anything at all. But at the end of the day, uh, people won't hang ugly over their couch. <laughs> That's very pragmatic. And so if you want to get your message out, it's got to be something that people can accept. And so my work dealt primarily. So I'll give you a quick, a quick story. Um, and I'm going to leave a lot out, but I was a struggling young artist, as many artists are. And I had tried for years to paint what I thought people would want, and none of it worked. And one day I gave up. I thought, you know, it's time to pack it up. This is not the career for me, obviously. And so I packed it up. And that night, as I was falling asleep, um, I just had this inspiration. And I got up and took out my work. And I was thinking about my sisters and my chapons and aunties and cookums. And um, I thought, I'm going to paint a strong indigenous woman who is connected to herself, connected to the land. And I'm going to do it uh, with an, a nod to stained glass, which is the beautiful symbol of what for many indigenous people became something horrific. And I painted that and I painted another and another. The sun came up and I took these works into the Bear Claw Gallery in Edmonton. And they said, well, we'll ask the owner what they think. I got a call by the time I got home and it said, bring in everything you've got. We'll do a show. And so I painted nonstop for a week uh, in, this, in this vein and brought it in. And the idea is that we're co-opting the symbols of uh, what many people consider oppression and turning it into something beautiful. And with who? With the people who are at the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder and Did making them the, yeah. the heroes and the paragons. That is, and, and that was not that many years ago then. No, that was, uh, it was not, wow. Really? Uh, well, kind of. I guess it was uh, about 15 years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Which really for you and me is not that long ago. <laughs> Your artwork is also featured very prominently in the new, the entryways of the new Royal Alberta Museum. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting when I saw the piece there because it is so important to tell First Nations and Métis stories of Alberta history but it's not easy to get them right. So how do we make sure that we tell those stories and, and, and tell them the right way? I think that, there's, uh, that we have to separate it. There, there is the, uh, there's the academic story, right? There is the government sanctioned, in many ways, sanitized story, even if they're trying to be bold. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the real stories, right? And those are messy. And so if we want to tell the story, we have to tell the messy stories, the uncomfortable stories, the stories yeah. that show um, the true horror of legislative power over people and uh, how that inculcates itself into the way that people end up viewing their neighbors and that embedded inherent uh, bias and racism. Because let's be frank, 
Canada was founded in part on uh, the idea that indigenous peoples had to be eliminated by hook or crook, yeah. right? And if we can't face just that one fact, then we won't be able to face anything else because from that comes residential school, from that comes the child welfare system, from that comes uh, the ration system whereby the government could starve indigenous people into compliance. From that comes medical testing and disease. From that comes incarceration and broken communities and broken families and substance abuse and deep psychological and emotional and spiritual trauma. From that comes the myth that indigenous people don't know how to work but what people fail to remember is it's because the, the federal government and provincial governments and municipal governments took away their means of working and would not allow them to work. And if they did work, they couldn't get their products to market. People don't know this story. So yeah. there are so many horror stories about what has happened in our history, our short Canadian history and our, our Albertan history, that if people actually knew it, First, they, they would actually probably have to go through the stages of grief. And I mean that seriously. Yeah. And so denial is the first stage. And a lot of people don't get past that. Yeah, denial and anger. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, to get to the acceptance part is a long journey. Very long journey. Um, and I think Indigenous people are ready for that journey. Um, I don't know if everyone else is. Some people are. I think you are. I hope I, I strive to be. Yeah. But, but, but it's tough too. You know, I, I was saying to a journalism class to whom I was speaking just the other day, that if you go back and look at the early work I did on child welfare, that I was, you know, as a young woman in my 20s, in the grips of a serious white savior complex. I mean, and it was really an epiphany for me to look at myself and think, how different was I spiritually, if I can use that term for me, a very um, agnostic person, but how different was I in my core, in my motivations from the people who ran the residential schools? I mean, I was, I was, you know, so angry about the situations I saw Indigenous kids living in. I wanted to fix everything without stopping to think about the about what, what brought their parents to that point, what brought their grandparents to that point. And, you know, and here was I all full of ideas uh, as a young recruiting journalist of how we should fix things without stopping to listen to the people themselves. It took me a long time to get there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's, 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 we could actually create an entire podcast series just on these issues alone, which would show, show something new every single week. But what fascinates me about this conversation is that what we're talking about is, is uh, what identifies you or what, how do you identify as an Albertan? And this story that, that we're talking about, this uh, relationship with uh, Indigenous people, kind of makes it uncomfortable. It almost attacks this idea of what an Albertan is, right? And that is of no fault to any Albertan, uh, but it is a problem with our system that upholds one narrative over another and then 
but that narrative actually happens to be quite destructive for everyone. Yeah. And so we get this idea of Joe Alberton, right? Uh, independent, you know, doesn't rely on anyone, uh, maybe loves his community and family and uh, holds uh, traditional conservative values, right? But is that what an Albertan is? No. An Albertan is you and me and the people listening to this uh, podcast. And if there is a Joe Alberton, I think Joe Alberton has a way more open mind and is way more compassionate and loving than people give him, give him credit for. Yeah, than his leaders give him credit to be. But people play on that narrative. Leaders play on that narrative uh, in order to tap into something, in order to gain power. And what do they want to gain power for? And that's a big question that, uh, that um, I grapple with all the time. Why are people choosing to go into power if their goal is not to include their heart into their decision-making? Like that should be the goal. We can, we can, as I said, we can govern, we can live by our mind. But if our heart is not involved it's empty, it's meaningless, and probably destructive. Aaron Piquette, thank you so much for this conversation. It, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. Take care. Thank you, Senator. You are uh, one of the people who has absolutely inspired me in my life, and I really appreciate that. Thank you to Aaron Piquette, and thank you to all of our other Alberta Unbound guests for this season, Alika Lafontaine, Yasmin Abulaban, Tomi Angeli, Barry Morishita, Natalie Pawn, Chaldeans Mensa, Lourdes Juan, and Avnish Nanda. Thank you to all you do every day to make Alberta a better and more thoughtful place. And thank you, dear listener, for coming on this journey with us. Thanks especially to Ame Tronalia of my Senate staff, the editor and producer of Alberta Unbound. I literally could not have done this without you. And thank you always, Alberta. You maddening, exasperating, inspiring, beautiful, complicated place, this stunning land where we are all treaty people. You are my home and my heart, and I will always try to do you proud. Stay well, stay safe, and stay brave. Merci, and hi hi.